Crafty Music, proudly supported by John Reynolds Music. Hey guys, Andy here for Crafty Muso, and I have with me today Ben Hanlon, who is in the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra on bass. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, Ben. Uh, g'day, Andy. Uh, my name is Ben Hanlon. I've been in the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra for about four years now as a permanent. Before then, I was studying in the States and playing in the States. Been very fortunate to travel around a lot, also from Melbourne, so did a lot of my study at the Australian National Academy of Music. I also do a lot of playing in other fields like jazz and recording sessions and teach at the Melbourne University and Monash. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I wanted to pass it over to you to give it a, a more, uh, a more, a, a greater perspective of where you come from. Um, so, when you were in the, uh, in the States, what, what kind of things were you doing over there? Primarily, I was studying. I did my Bachelor of Music at a place called the Colburn Conservatory of Music in L.A., which um, at the time, the teacher there was Paul Ellison along with David Moore, or rather I should say David Moore was the main teacher with Paul Ellison coming in every two weeks. And both of those guys are incredible uh, teachers. So the majority of my time was learning from them, primarily sort of orchestral repertoire and solo repertoire for the double bass and a lot of technique work. And in addition to that, I was very fortunate to get to go and play with uh, the New World Symphony in Miami, which is America's sort of leading training orchestra, and then also to do a number of summer festivals and a lot of um, general sort of professional experience over there. So that was my main experience. Yeah, awesome. So uh, how did you kind of fund that? Did you get a grant or did you just... Uh... Well, Colburn's a very special place. Uh, Colburn is a very unique uh, school in as much as it's only an orchestra plus a few piano students okay. and then they actually provide you with an apartment food and a small stipend for living wow. and your tuition and everything is free so all i had to really fund was flying over there that's so amazing I was so very very lucky is the trade-off that well not really trade-off um the, the reason that it exists is because you're performing for the university or there's an element of that but the real reason it exists is because of a very wealthy man called Richard Colburn uh, decided to basically give all his money to making the school in a very generous act of philanthropy. So ah. it was established what he, his idea was that if you could give music students exactly what they need and not have them distracted with, you know, the day to day of needing to make money that they could actually practice like crazy and improve at the rate that you need to to compete in a pretty competitive industry and um, as a result that school and also the one that is very similar on the east coast Curtis tend to be very successful in music students sort of finding careers because you literally have nothing to do except practice and learn and do your degree subjects and there's 24-hour access to practice rooms so awesome. it's a brilliant school. Yeah, so I guess it kind of does, yeah, it works in the way of a scholarship, as in if you're not really, you know, carrying your weight, they might kind of assess your, you know, your situation and stuff or? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. but yeah, I think most music schools are like that these days regardless. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So, um, just in, in, your, in your profession, there's probably a lot of uh, repertoire learning, yeah? Yeah, there uh, is. So what what are some kind of tips and some things that you do to kind of make this more efficient and, a, a, you know, a better process? Well, I mean, there's two parts to that. The first part is if you're sort of looking to have a career in an orchestra or in orchestral work, you're going to need to do a lot of just throwing yourself in there and trying to work as much as you possibly can with 
uh, sort of amateur orchestras, youth orchestras, training orchestras, because the only way to really learn this repertoire properly and the orchestral skills needed to be able to do it weekly is to get to do it a lot before you do it professionally mm-hmm. so that you can sort of iron out a lot of the kinks and come into contact with at least a small amount of repertoire so you're sort of aware of what you're in for. The second component of that is also part of any good um, orchestral learning process will take you through a lot of the core rep and the rep that is most famous for your instrument. I think it would be actually impossible if you were to get a job in an orchestra and not have any knowledge of your instrument's repertoire at all. Because if you had to come in contact every single week with a new piece and occasionally pieces that are famously difficult for your instrument come up and you haven't actually touched them, then you'd be unlikely to learn it all to the standard. So you need to have a certain amount of repertoire coming in. So that would be the first step. And part of getting into an orchestra is playing the excerpts from these pieces. So that's sort of already catered to. Yeah, for sure. In terms of keeping up with the rep, obviously we have about two hours of new rep every week. So part of that is a sight reading component. You need to prepare extremely well. And I like to prepare about a month out from each program to have played through the music and had a look and check for really challenging things. Mm -hmm. The most important part though is to listen to it. And I think that in my experience, this is the bit that music students of all genres tend to underestimate the most you know just because it's written down doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't listen and if you can listen to every piece you play before you play it you give yourself a very very good chance of getting through because things that look difficult on paper can actually be extremely so slow or simple or rubato and pulled around and things that look incredibly easy can be very exposed and difficult and so it's the first step is listen to the piece Mm -hmm. then you need to have a strong sort of preparation so I like to sort of look at things about a month in advance try to stay about a month ahead of where we are make sure that I figured out you know the general feel of the piece which sections are going to require a lot more sort of shedding because they're technically difficult which sections are musically important and are going to be exposed And then obviously you need to have a certain amount of sight reading ability because, you know, certain sections you won't be able to learn by heart. So you'll just have to rely on the fact that you can read, you know, relatively complex rhythms or simple patterns uh, so that you can concentrate on the bits that are really difficult. So those are the main things. But it's the biggest challenge of an orchestral job. Yeah, I mean, that's that's your where the kind of the day job aspect comes in right (laughs) absolutely yeah because that no matter how well you prepare and no matter how hard you work eventually it gets to a point where you know maybe you've had the flu for a week and haven't been able to practice and there's quite a difficult program coming up and you end up in there not quite as prepared and you do have to have some strategies in terms of being able to sit back and really read the music and listen to what everyone else is doing and fit in so that you don't really have a shocker in the first rehearsal and you give yourself a chance to learn it. But, yeah, that yeah. Com- comes with experience as well. Mm. Um, just just with that, um, you say that you'd normally take about a month to prepare. Um, yep. I don't know what it's like in the classical world, but um, in, you know, because I've only had a, a kind of jazz experience, but, you know, writing on your charts and, you know, doing a lot of annotations and stuff is quite common. Is it is the same thing for, for yourself? Uh, I'm actually not... I don't like... 
well, I have no problem with, say, I'm sharing music with someone that does like to write all over their music. I have no problem with that, but I don't tend to do it myself. Okay. For me, what I find is that if I do enough work on a certain passage and I really, really think about it, um, I can sort of internalize quite a lot. So I, for me, it's more about sort of spending the time starting it off really slow, just checking all the notes, coming up with a fingering that I think works for the music, mm-hmm. a bowing that's either the one that's been provided by the orchestra or that I think is the most functional and getting those up to a standard where I find it very easy to play the music. Because for us in orchestra, obviously, once you get in there, the conductor's got to give it his own spin and so everything will get changed. So in terms of annotations and writing things down, it's generally pretty dangerous to do much of that before rehearsal because a lot of it will be changed. So you're thinking more about just the nuts and bolts of how can I get the best result and be the most malleable. Um, so yeah, that, that one's slightly different. Yeah. I think like with the annotations, again, it would probably be more in the, um, in the, the situation where the orchestra or the band is together and someone is making changes, uh, like say the, the, uh, the conductor is saying, oh, you know, this part, we always play it, uh, incorrectly here, um, because we rush or something like that. So you could just put like a little note in. Like yeah, that, we'll but, we'll yeah. write all over it in rehearsal, and um, yeah, I think that was a bit yeah. more my point. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that that's cool. Because um, then I guess it's good to just uh, have like a little heads up sometimes if you know um, what parts that the whole you know the whole ensemble should be kind of working together more on. Uh, Absolutely, um, and we do. We we have a whole bunch of systems of different little markings that sort of will give you a heads up that something's going to slow down or be a rubato or speed up or that certain accents are required or certain sort of articulations. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the really great conductors can sort of convey that in the moment with their body anyway. So the things also change in the moment. So, you know, there's a range of ways that those kind of ideas get conveyed. Awesome. Cool. So I'll I'll move more into specific specifically the uh, the the bass and just some um what are some tech like some technical exercises and you know some uh, dexterity exercises that you you find effective for yourself or you've used in the past or you kind of you recommend to other people uh, could you run us through through some of those Yeah, I can. Um, what I would say first is that I th- I think the most efficient way to practice is to have a certain amount that's about repetition and forming consistency and doing exercises that you know you can do extremely well so that you sort of do them every day and you build up a familiarity. Mm-hmm. And then that you have a large part of your practice that's about problem solving and isolating what the problem is for you with certain repertoire or a certain passage and then creating an exercise where you not only solve that particular problem but do it in a range of keys and in a range of ways so that you... Uh, that that thing that was originally a problem can then become a strength. Um, so in terms of like common uh, exercises I do every day that I use as part of a warm-up, for example, I think that um, on a double bass, it's a great idea to do a chromatic scale up each string on in, a, in two octaves, sort of in positions where you do the notes in groups of three. Um, the main with a tuner and then just by ear so that you really get a sense of getting every single note right in tune having a real sense of where those positions fit where how the fingers go all the way up into the you know the end of second octave in thumb position 
and then having a real idea of every note's geography on the double bass. And I find that if you do that every day, uh, you get a really good consistent sense of how your bass is feeling and how you're feeling, and it's a good way of warming up before you do anything overly technical. Mm-hmm. In terms of dexterity, um, I like to do a finger pattern exercise where you just go in one position starting in second position on the g string is always good because it's an easy place to play and not too physically taxing and then just going every finger combination say one two one two one four one four two four two four and then backwards and then the other variations on that and do it starting slow and then gradually speeding it up to making sure that you're doing it in such a way that it's relaxed and it's coming from your arm and your shoulder and your body and not from your fingers and then you'll gradually be able to speed that right up and I use that as a bit of a, a warm-up for dexterity so awesome. yeah that's that sounds uh, sounds good um, uh, moving yeah moving on to uh, kind of actually no I, I want to kind of look at that a little bit more um, so when you're uh, yeah, you're warming up and stuff like that. Do you do? You, is it purely because um, for for me, like for myself, I used to always, especially in winter, I'd actually do like ten push-ups or something before I played, just so I'd like get the blood flowing and you know, so your hands aren't so cold. Because that that to me that was like one of the biggest problems was was when my hands, what well, it still is, you know, when when your hands are super cold and you just lose the sensation and your, your sense of touch. What, do you do something similar to that, like a, actually a physical um, preparation? Well, I, I walk to work every day, so it, it gets pretty cold in Melbourne, but generally by the time I've walked to work, I'm feeling pretty warmed up. Mm, that's um, so that's, that element is good, but it, I try to do the same warm-up every single day, and my warm-up sort of goes... There's an extended version where if I'm really getting into it and I really feel like there's some technical things I want to clean up, it could go for about 45 minutes. But generally, I can get a really good warm-up with all of my exercises done in about 20 to 25 minutes. And as long as I do that every day, by the time I get to the point of you know, playing through a bit of the passage for whatever piece we're working on or just generally sort of getting touch for the bass for a program that's pretty light, mm-hmm. um, I, I generally feel pretty good physically. It's also good because it means that I've got a set of exercises that I know I can play even if I'm half asleep or even if I'm not feeling particularly well that sort of give me consistency on the bass and help me to feel like, you know, nothing's going to go wrong. You don't have those really shocker days because you've already warmed up the same way and things start to feel the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so fundamentally with that kind of thing, I start with uh, long tones with the bow just on open strings and do a bunch of different bowing combinations without the left hand getting involved. And then I'll do, you know, that the shifting exercise, a few shifting exercises to just get the feel for that particular bass if I've been switching bases. Um, then I'll do my chromatic scales and my dexterity stuff. Mm-hmm. And then a bit of uh, scale work or pizzicato work depending on what I'm about to play and by then I'm generally feeling really good and I've done it in a thorough way where I've made sure that I haven't you know bashed through and made a whole bunch of mistakes or sounded bad so that you know things sort of build on themselves and you feel like you're playing really well by the time you have to play in earnest so yeah okay cool. just something related to the whole uh, you know technique and uh, dexterity and stuff like that I know because I, I personally don't play double bass, I just play electric, but I know a lot of people uh, that play double that come in uh, in contact with things like RSI and carpal tunnel and, you know, these these really bad overuse uh, 
um, injuries. Have you had any experience in like dealing with that, or like have you avoid like done anything specific to avoid that happening? Well, yeah, I mean, I've been very, very fortunate um, to never have a major injury, and a part of that has been that every teacher that I've worked with has been very particular about injury prevention. And clearly the double bass is a very um, physically taxing instrument. And clearly that even if you're working at the most efficient rate, there is a certain amount of work that your muscles are doing. So I think the first thing to be aware of is that there's a limit to how much you can play the double bass in a day. Mm. And you can build that up over time. And currently for me, that would be about eight to nine hours and then I really don't want to play anymore and I definitely want to have a couple, preferably two, but maybe just one really light day in that week where I play it for sort of a maximum of two hours because if if you're playing it constantly, it doesn't matter how efficient your technique is, there's a point at which, you know, it's just going to be physically taxing and those kind of injuries are more likely to occur. Mm -hmm. But then also building a technique where you really make sure that you're not trying to do it using small muscle groups, like using the fingers to push the string down. Try to use your whole arm's weight coming from the shoulder and incorporating the back, really feeling like you're very connected to the ground, whether you're sitting or standing, and, and making sure that you're trying to do these things not only in an efficient way, but in a way that you don't feel like you, are, you have to muscle the bass at all times to get a sound. If you can have a very sort of efficient technique that's based on using um you know muscle weight and relaxed arms as much as possible then i think you give yourself a really good chance of avoiding those injuries and then if you make sure that over time you build up the amount of time you play on the bass per day gradually and that you don't jump straight in from having just played the bass guitar to playing double bass to playing double bass eight hours a day (laughs) then you give yourself a good chance of avoiding those kind of injuries but that's a big part of all bass technique and it's something that you really have to consider so yeah yeah awesome so ben um what are two musical moments that uh really stand out to you and what led to to these moments um well i sort of i had to think about this question because i'm very very fortunate in that it's been a whole series of moments uh-huh. And so I sort of thought that it would be two categories. The first category is that there's been a whole bunch of moments where I actually thought, yes, this is actually going to work out and I'm going to get to do this professionally. Because I think no matter how lucky you are and how good you feel you are at music, mm-hmm. there are definitely moments where you sort of go, how am I going to make money? Is this actually going to be um, a career that works out for me or should I have some sort of backup plan? Definitely. I think it's the thing that goes through every musician's head every day, right? (laughs) Exactly. And I still had a backup plan basically right up until I was, um, you know, 23, 24 and getting my job in the Melbourne Symphony, even though I'd been overseas, even though I'd played with orchestras, even though I'd had a lot of experience, you know, you really don't know if it's going to work out and whether you should be going back and getting your dip head or any of that kind of stuff. Uh So the big moments were, you know, in addition to getting into the schools, which sort of made me think that I could do it. But for me, the big moment was passing the audition with uh, the MSO Mm. because it sort of means that you've got a full-time job, you've got a range of um, sort of... uh, 
you know, a financial base, but also a real solid feeling of you're going to get to do it professionally long term. So that was a really great moment for me in terms of what led up to it. Basically, my entire Life. playing career. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because an audition is really, really difficult. I think everyone that's done an audition for, you know, a college, for an orchestra, for a band, for any knows how hard it can be. And the thing about uh, orchestral auditions is that, you know, there's a large number of highly qualified other people there with you who, yeah. you know, yeah, on any good given day could win. And yeah. you just have to be so bulletproof that you can ignore that element and do your best performance. And, yeah, and for those that don't know how the system works, it's all behind a screen. So they can't see you, you can't see them. You play for a large group of orchestral musicians you'll prepare a set list that's usually like a hit parade of the hardest bass moments in orchestral repertoire. <laughs> um, so you'll play for maybe 10 minutes, they'll cut the group down. You play again for longer, they'll cut the group down. You might play again, they'll cut it right down to just one person. And then you go on trial for a long period of time where you play in the orchestra, but you don't have your job until you get passed from your trial, which is in many ways more stressful than the audition, which is usually about six months to a year. And at the end of that, you're a fully-fledged member of the MSO. Uh, so that whole process was really big for me and really exciting. So that's one. Yeah, definitely. I'm um, sorry, just before we go to the, to the second one, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that. wanted you to talk a little bit more about um, how, how you kind of mentally prepare for this these moments and... Uh, what what gets you through the you know the immense kind of pressure that uh, you might feel in the the situation? Well, a few things. I mean, routine is really big. Um, making sure that you know you can play these things through at four a.m. in the morning when you're half asleep, or middle of the day, or when you're feeling really really amped up, or when you're not feeling it at all, and that you know your very best is really really good but also that the very worst you play is not that far off it so mm. working really really hard for consistent performance and you know all the skills you're going to need for the job but actually doing it um, on the hardest repertoire in this context the second thing is I find that getting it's important not to get caught up in the competitive aspect of it mm. I think that I think that you know, competitions are necessary evil sometimes in music, but if you get too into the sort of sport of trying to beat other people and not really <laughs> thinking about yourself, it can really psych you out. It's got to be about your own sort of journey, for lack of a better way of saying it, that you think about how am I getting better? Have I improved as part of this process? How am I making all these musical choices? Am I putting my best foot forward? And you f you're totally focused on that then even if you don't win, you've probably got something out of the audition. You've probably improved a huge amount as a musician, and that's a very positive thing. If you get too caught up in, I'm going to beat all these people, you probably won't improve that much. Mm. And you, you, you'll be thinking too much about what they're going to do and not enough about what you're actually doing. Yeah, so just kind of wasting mental energy, right? Exactly. And the third element is visualization. Um, my line with my students is that, you know, in the practice room, you've got to be your own harsh, harshest critic, mm. but on stage, you have to be your biggest fan. Because mm. if you're going to get in front of people, you have to give yourself the confidence to think that they should listen to you, that, you know, you have a reason to play for them. And if you bring in the person that you are in the practice room, the person that's infinitely aware of every single little problem with your playing, mm. 
you're not necessarily going to go as well as if you bring in a person that just thinks everything you do is fantastic. <laughs> so bringing in that sort of everything's going to go the best it's ever gone, I feel fantastic attitude the moment you get on stage is a really positive thing, I think. And that's what I try to do. That's, you know, he only comes out when I actually get on stage and then the rest <laughs> of the time he's critiquing every single thing that I do. But yep. I think it's a really good attitude because... Too many people psych themselves out before they even play by thinking about all the negatives in their playing rather than the positives. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Very, very, very good advice there. Um, so, yeah, go, go on with the uh, the second kind of moment that really stood out to you. Well, the second thing is just uh, playing experiences. And again, I've been super lucky. And because I'm a crossover into, you know, playing jazz and all that kind of stuff, There's, it's very difficult for me to separate things. For example... I play with Hugh Blaines' quartet and we played what was meant to be, Bennett's ended up lasting a bit longer, but what was meant to be the, one of the last nights at Bennett's and that was super exciting for me. Yeah, well. Bennett's Lane is an institution and it was so great to play. So that's one that from this year really stands out. Uh-huh. Also playing a concerto with orchestra as the soloist was a huge moment wow. for me. Got to do it when I moved back from the States and it was extremely terrifying but exciting <laughs> at the same time. And also we had a big um, Melbourne Symphony tour uh, last year where we played at the Proms in Royal Albert Hall in England and that was super, super, super exciting. So, you know, that's three and I'm very fortunate in that I could probably reel off a lot more and they all feel like the most special thing you've ever done while you're doing them. Yeah. it's really hard to rank those kind of things. No, definitely. No, that that's uh, really kind of inspiring. Just hearing all these, you know, all these things that you that you've played at, and I'm sure you know the listeners will get a lot of, lot out of just you know seeing the potential that you know that there is out there. Um, it's a, oh, it's it's a fun place to be. You know, when, <laughs> when you're very lucky and these things come along, it's super super fun. And if you know, if they go well as well, which fortunately those things really did, then you come away with a really good feeling about them. So that was yeah. nice. Awesome. So just to, to wrap up, um, what would you say to players who want to be in a position like, such as yourself? Yeah, there's a few things. Um, the first thing that I would say is that the of all the successful and great musicians that I've ever met and worked with and all the students I've ever seen, the one unifying factor is really, really hard work. You know, mm-hmm. there is a perception in certain quarters that, you know, the way the music is one big performance and then you're highly successful. And, you know, as long as you have the talent, that happens. And I've seen a lot of highly talented people miss out because they didn't necessarily work as hard as some people that probably weren't as talented but had a much better work ethic. So the first thing would be work super hard and work super smart. Try to be as efficient with your time as you possibly can be. Um, The next thing would just be that make sure you're in it for the right reason, which is that you love music and that you love listening to music and that you love playing music because, you know, you never really know where you're going to end up and if, if it hadn't worked out for me, I'd probably be teaching music at a primary school or a high school or I would be um, struggling to make ends meet but playing, you know, limited concerts that I could have access to. And I, th- I think I would be still very happy in the sense that I love playing music and this is always what I've wanted to do. Mm. So if you get into it because you think that you're going to get the best case scenario rather than just because you absolutely love it, 
there's no guarantees of that. And it's highly likely that for a long period of your career, that's not going to be what you're doing. So make sure that you really love it and that you really love listening to other people and sharing and being part of a community. Because, you know, like we were talking about before, the competitive aspect and this sort of winning music competitions, and that's one tiny, tiny part of what's actually about giving and sharing and um, being a community. Mm-hmm. And so you really need to make sure that you love that aspect, I think. Yeah, definitely. Thanks thanks again, Ben. It's been a pleasure having you on and there's you know so much that you shared which is so relevant and so helpful to, to young and even you know older musicians, just uh, people that are looking to improve themselves. So thank, thank you again, Ben. Thanks for having me, Andy. It's great fun.